You know, sometimes it's really hard to live up to the introduction. You know, it just is. People say all these things. I mean, I can't remember what I spoke about at that retreat either, but I'm 70. I have an excuse. All right, so we'll go through there. Hey, before I start this morning, I just want to say thank you to the worship team. Um, as a speaker, I want you to know that delivering the Word of God is so much easier after you've entered into the presence of the Lord in a worship service. You have a bad worship service, you're plowing, and you're plowing hard ground, but when the hearts of people are already open, the Word of God can just lay bare, and it can be very easy to understand. And so thank you guys for being sensitive to that, and for Bob and Sue, for a great church. It's a church that we have had connections with for years as we go back, and I was I knew it would happen. I come in this morning and I, I run into people here that I've known from the past. The door greeter back there, you know, was Rod Robinson. He was hiding behind a beard and a mask, but it was still Rod, you know, it was. And, and people come up and they're familiar faces. And I thank you as a minister. I thank you guys for being faithful as a church to your commitment to follow Jesus. We live in a day when churches are closing, when pastors are quitting, everything else, and it's no longer easy, but it's important to be a Christian. And that's when Christianity shines, is when it's not welcome in the world. And so I thank you. Thank you as a pastor again for doing this. And, and this morning, I, I want to share with you a little bit. We've got some time here. And, um, Peter told me that you guys are kind of beginning this year by going through a couple of topics. And the purpose of these topics is to prepare the church to condition each of you for whatever the Lord's going to do. If there's one lesson we've learned in the last two years, it's things change. Everything changes. And as things change, if we're going to survive, we have to learn to adapt and change too. Sometimes the way we did things 20 years ago is not the same way that we can do it today. But we don't change the message, we just change the vehicle through which we do it. And it's important as we come through these days to be as open to the Lord as He wants to come and share with us maybe a new pattern, a new methodology. And don't be afraid of that. Uh, you go back to the book of Acts, they had no manual. On the day of Pentecost, they're looking out, they got 3,000 people. Now what do we do? You know, and, and you know, you talk about church growth, but you go from 120 to 3,120 in one day. You can't teach somebody how to get ready for that. You just don't. You sit there saying, God, if you're not in this, we're going to die. We just are. And so we're looking now at this, and, and change is important. Uh, I'm a teacher, I'm involved in education, and know this, that as you go back and read some of the classic books on education, you will find this, that the definition of education and learning is change. And you may not understand that, but see, when you go to a school or a class and you learn information you did not know before you entered into that class, you leave a different person, you are changed. When you go to a technical school and you learn a skill that you could not perform earlier, you have changed. We're constantly changing. If we don't, something's wrong. I've got grandkids. I love these little guys. Sometimes. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> we had them over for Christmas. All three of our kids were together. First time in two years. And that is 14 people. That includes six grandkids running around our house. It was chaos. It was absolute chaos. They sneezed on us. They coughed on us. They, you know, ralphed on us. They did everything. Kids share everything with you, good and bad, all right? But you look and, and you see as you go through, as cute as they are when they're kids, you don't expect them to stay kids forever. In fact, if they do, something's wrong. And we expect them to grow. And God's the same with His kids. We don't stay babies forever. There's a time, there's an appropriate season to be that, but then there's an appropriate season to be able to move on, become more mature, which enables us not only to handle deeper things that God wants to give us, but enables us also to be able to do more in the world around us. We grow. And so 
the series I know that you're in right now, or at least what is being called here, is Be With God. And as Peter and Tamar have communicated to me, the idea of this season is just to be aware of this. There's going to be several key components in being an effective disciple of Jesus. One is understanding your going and understanding the power that's going to be in you, the Holy Spirit, and you work through all of this. But one of the keystones to our Christian life is the presence of God and to connect with Him. And to do that, it's in our time with Him that we change. In Acts chapter 4, as Peter and and several of the other apostles are called before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they are there because they've been preaching about Jesus in the temple and, and upsetting the apple cart a little bit, as they stood before the Sanhedrin, it says this, And the leaders that were there in the Sanhedrin looked and they listened to Peter and they listened to the others and they listened to the way that they responded with boldness and with clarity. And they were taken back a little bit. And they said, these are uneducated fishermen. How is it that they respond with such authority and such clarity? And then when you finish the verse, it says this, and they perceived and recognized they'd been with Jesus. See, it's not just enough to recognize a face in Jesus' entourage. You also recognize the character of Jesus in the sense that he can respond with such clarity. When the the scribes now and the Pharisees would come and challenge him, Jesus could just respond so clearly and dig through all of their subterfuge. And they realized these disciples are talking like somebody that we know. Yeah, it's who they've been hanging out with. And when we look at the presence of the Lord, sometimes it's easy just to associate that with an atmosphere that is acquired now in a worship service. But can I say this? Being in the presence of God is a place of transference. It's a place where He begins to change us. Clear example of this in the Bible is when Moses went up on the mountain to be in the presence of the Lord. He came down and he was shining. Moses changed. God did not. He changed because he'd spent 40 days in the presence of the Lord. And the people couldn't look at it. Why? Because he was looking more like God than he was like the rest of them. And this is what the presence of the Lord does. We begin to take on his mannerisms. We begin to allow his spirit to infuse character in us. We allow our minds to be transformed so we can understand the will of God. Those are the things that take place in his presence. No wonder the psalmist said, one day in your courts is better than a thousand out there. More can be accomplished here in one day than can be accomplished out there. And so as we look at this, what we are trying to say here is, if the presence of the Lord is that place where we grow and mature, how do we find the presence of the Lord? How do we get there? And I'd like to say this this morning, that there are different paths to get you there. There's not just one. We can get into the presence of the Lord through prayer and fasting. And prayer and fasting are so crucial. We can get there now through worship, just like we did this morning. And you begin to feel the softness and the mercy of God that is there and so forth. We can get into the presence of the Lord by being in community with each other. Because we pick up on the Spirit of God that is in other people. And iron sharpens iron so that we are benefited. This is what all the teaching is in the New Testament about the body, one body, many joints. And one joint has an impact upon the other joints that are there. It is the mutuality that we see there. And so when Christ is in my brother and I spend time with him, I am encouraged by the Christ that is in him. I am blessed by that community now as the nature of Christ rubs off on other people. But one of the great avenues into the presence of the Lord is his word. It's his book. It's what has been passed on to us as we come down, you know, in history. And Jesus is no longer with us in the flesh. He's here through his spirit. But yet that memorial that he has left behind is the word of God. And I've been asked to share this morning a little bit about the importance of the Word of God and how it relates to entering into God's presence. And the title I've given to you here of the the message here is A Portal to His Presence. Now realize what a portal is. A portal is an entry point. 
It's a place where you go from one area and you transfer and you go into another area. And without that porthole, there's probably a barrier that's going to be there, a closed door. But this porthole now allows us to go from just our relationship to our earthly life, the temporal life that we have here, to entering into the spirit realm where God lives and functions that's out there. And that little porthole, that entryway, and there are several. I've just mentioned them. Worship is a porthole. Prayer is a porthole. Community is a porthole. But the Word of God is a portal, too. And we'll find that as we go into the Word of God, it's going to tell things about God that we wouldn't know without the book. Things that on our own we couldn't understand. And we know this is true because the Bible has said that I has not seen nor ear heard things that are prepared for those who love him, which means how do we find out about it? We've got to go to the places where he tells us about them. Now, you and I relate to our world around us. Your environment, your world is communicating to you all the time. It's communicating to you through sound waves. It's communicating to you through photons and light patterns. It's communicating to you through temperature and texture, smells, tastes, things like that. And how we connect to our environment around here is through portals. Our eyes, our ears, our smell, our touch. Our five senses are what allow us to break into our environment and begin to interact with it. And when one of those portals is closed, our understanding to our environment is limited. You talk to anybody who's handicapped, and they may be able to hear but not see, and so they can at least get part of it, but the full picture of it takes the five portholes that God has given to us. And we need those to connect with what's out there. Well, I'd like to say this. Just as our environment is constantly talking to us and communicating to us through sight and smell and everything else, there is a realm that exists around us that's constantly communicating to us too. It's a spirit realm. It's the realm of God. It's the place where God and angels and demons and principalities, where they function, and it's more real than the one that you and I are used to. But the problem is, oftentimes, that people's portals to that realm are closed, so it's not communicating to them. They don't see out there. They don't understand what's there. But guess what? God's still there. This morning, you felt part of it through worship. Some of you felt his forgiveness. Some of you felt limitations that have come into your life. And that porthole allowed you to sense his mercy and his forgiveness. In the book of Hebrews chapter 5, as the author is talking to the readers that are there, he says this. He says, there's some certain topics I'd like to tell you about, but I can't. And the reason I can't tell you about them is because you are immature. He says that to his readers. That's not how you make friends, but that's what he said, all right? He says, you're immature. And then he goes on to say this, and these things are things that the mature understand, and the reason they're mature is because they have exercised their senses to develop the ability to discern between good and evil. We have senses that are beyond our five physical senses. They are senses that allow us to connect with the invisible realm that's around us. The Bible says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you taste God? But he's there. Elisha the prophet said to the Lord when his servant boy saw the Syrian army around the city and the Syrian said, the little boy said, we're doomed. And Elisha says this, open his eyes so that he can see. And suddenly the boy sees the heavens and the chariots, the angels and, the, and so forth between them and the Syrian army. They were always there. The boy couldn't see him. His eyes could not see it. And there's a spiritual realm that God says, you have spiritual senses, but you need to exercise them. You need to train them. You need to help them to grow up and mature. And if you finish that passage there in Hebrews 5.14, it says this. You exercise your senses to be able to discern between good and evil. 
We're no longer talking about sweet and salty, cold and hot, loud and soft. We're talking about senses that allow us to discern ethics, morality. And no wonder our world is so messed up today because they lack the sense to enter into the discernment of good and evil. So we as people have to say, Lord, what are these portholes? What are these senses that you're developing in us? And how do we develop them? So let's walk through some stuff very quickly. God is going to communicate to us here. And what I'd like you to see is what we call in Scripture the doctrine of revelation. Doctrine of revelation is simply this. God communicates, and he communicates different ways to us. Now, as you study basic doctrine or systematic theology, you'll find that there's two primary ways that God communicates to us. One is what we call general revelation. And I've given to you Psalms 19 and and Romans chapter 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. They declare, they talk about him, and yet it says this, there is no word or there is no speech, but yet they communicate. We can look up and we can see the hand of God. We learn things. Romans chapter 1 says this, the invisible things of God are communicated through the things which are created and visible, including his divine nature and his power. God communicates through general revelation, which is what he gives to all people in all places. They can look at the stars, they can see nature, the balance, everything else. But then there's the special revelation. And this is the revelation that only certain people get. These are very pointed. These are very, very, at times, very individualistic. They can be a personal word of prophecy, an angelic visitation. They can be a dream. They can be a vision that God gives to people. But one of the classic ways that God has chosen in a special way to communicate with us is through his book. We go back to Romans chapter 3, and it says this. What advantage, then, do the Jewish people have? And it says, very simple, their advantage is this. To them was given the oracles of God. Deuteronomy 4 says, what other people has a God so near and commandments and precepts so beautiful? We have a tremendous privilege because he has passed on something to us that is not open and available just to everybody unless they open the book and read it. And so these are the two revelations that we see out there. And God now, through his scripture, has passed on something so beautiful to us as we go down and we take a look at this. The next thing I want to see is another way that God has communicated to us, and that's through his son. Jesus now has come, and he's come in a very unique role. We read the scripture, and we find, uh, if you guys read John 1.1, or you read in the book of Revelations, one of the titles that is used for Jesus is the Logos of God. It says, John says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And that Logos came, and it began to reveal things to him. He came to his own, and so forth. And the term logos seems a little bit obscure. It's not. It's simply we get the word ledger from that. It's the logos is simply the record of something. You go into a book and there's the record of all that's been done, the transactions, everything that's been done. Ben's here. He's an accountant. He's got, you know, people in their account, their taxes and so forth. And so the logos is simply the complete record now of, of something. And it's the record of what God has thought and so forth. And so the word, which represents the revelation of God, became flesh and dwelt among us so he could talk to us. And we see in these beautiful passages up here in John, it says, and I put that up because Jesus made a statement. He said this, the words that I speak are not my own. They come from the Father, which means what? As I talk to you, this is not my ideas. It's his ideas. They're up there. And so he comes and you begin to see Jesus is making very clear statement. And that is this. The words out of my mouth are his words. Listen to me. If you hear me, you've heard him. We see here also in the book of Luke, and it's such a beautiful story. And this is what ties in with what you guys are in the season being with him right now. And that is this. And this is a post-resurrection experience. Jesus has come back from the grave. He meets up with a couple of his disciples that are walking out to a very small little village called Emmaus. They do not recognize him physically, which means what? They do not know that they are in the presence of God. They're just walking along and a stranger comes and joins them. And as they're walking along, they're conversing about the events of the day that are there and so forth. And as they do, Jesus said, what you talking about? 
well, haven't you heard? Are you not from around here? And he says, tell me about it. And he did. And then it says this. And then Jesus, starting in the law, went through the Psalms and the prophets and began to tell them everything about himself. That'd be a neat time, you know. You're sitting there walking with the creator of the universe and he's interpreting the Bible for you. You know, I'd pay money for that. I would, you know. And so they're going along and they still don't know who the guy is. And he's going through, but as you go through the chapter, they're talking to each other, and when they finally get to their destination, they said this, hey, did you feel what I did when that, that guy was talking? My heart was burning. And this was not because of bad hummus. This, something else was going on inside. What is there? And it said, yeah, and for the first time in my life, my understanding opened up. <laughs> Notice what happens when God is present. The book begins to make sense. And then finally, when he broke bread, they got to their destination and says, ah, now we know who you are. All right. And they finally caught on. But it's interesting how when you enter into the presence of God, God's communication begins to take on a new clarity. And this is such a beautiful thing for us. Our next thing that we'll look at is people meet with God when they spend time in his word. Now, not only when we're in God's presence does his word make sense, but I'll say it goes the other way too. When you are in the word, his presence begins to come. In Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel 9 we look at it, and they're a little bit out of order. I'll start with there. In Daniel chapter 9, we go up, and Daniel is reading in the book of Jeremiah. He's sitting there. He's in Babylon. He's in captivity. He's reading Jeremiah, one of the prophecies about how long Israel will be in captivity. And as he's reading this book, and he's beginning to pray over it, and so suddenly God begins to talk with him and gives him one of the most intricate prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus coming, the work of redemption, and so forth. Why? Because he'd been in the Word. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, he's in his chariot going back from Jerusalem, back to Ethiopia. He's sitting there reading the scroll of Isaiah. He does not understand what he's reading. He's just reading it. Sounds like most of our devotions in the morning have no idea what this is about, you know. And he's sitting there and he goes through and suddenly Philip walks up and he yells at him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I understand unless somebody explains it? Come on in hops up in the chariot, and he starts reading it, and he begins, and what does he do? He introduces the eunuch to Jesus. It's the one that Isaiah was prophesying about. And the thing began to move in his heart. Finally, they're going along, and, and the eunuch says, there's water. What's going to stop me from being baptized at this point? And the last one I put up here is it's a beautiful one. This comes from, and you don't see it in the text, it comes from Jewish tradition. It comes from John 1. This is when Jesus is manifesting himself, and the apostles are going out and beginning to collect those that are going to become the disciples. And Philip goes out and grabs this guy named Nathaniel, and he's sitting under his fig tree. We say, okay, big deal. No, it is. Because in the Jewish understanding, and this goes back to two prophecies in Micah and Zechariah, in the Messianic kingdom, it's believed that every man will sit under his fig tree and under his vine, and that is where he's going to read the word of God, and that's where he's going to communicate. And the implication is that's what Nathaniel was doing. He's thinking about the scriptures. He's meditating on the scriptures, and suddenly Philip comes and says, hey, you got to meet who we just met. His time in the word led to his encounter with Jesus Christ. It led him into the presence of the Lord. And as he walks up, Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile. And he says, How did you know me? I saw you sitting under the tree. I saw you meditating upon it and wondering how God is going to perform his. As you spend time in that, I'll come and meet with you. So when we do spend time in the word of God, it has an impact in our life. Now, the next one is what happens now when people spend time in the, in the word of God? Now, I've given you two scriptures here. These are very important scriptures. One of them is from Psalms 19, and it's a great section. If you're not familiar with the Psalms, if you're new in the faith and so forth, there's two main Psalms that talk about the word of the Lord, Psalms 19 and Psalms 119. They are called what we refer to as didactic or teaching Psalms, and so they take a particular topic and they begin to expound on it. And Psalms 19 is interesting because the first part of this Psalm we've already referred to, 
the heavens are declaring the general revelation of God. But halfway through, it jumps to special revelation. And it starts talking about the word of the Lord. And let me read it to you from the text. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now notice all the things I put behind it. These are the things that the law will do for us. And we're talking law. We're not talking grace, happy. We're talking law. We're talking about where God is defining life and holiness and himself and so forth. And it says this, the law is perfect. And what does it do? It restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Any candidates for being a little simple? I got that. All right, there's days. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It brings joy. How? Through reading the law of God. How? Because in the law, he tells us he's sovereign. He controls the nation. His plan will be fulfilled. That gives me joy. That means I'm not susceptible just to the things around. The commandments of the Lord are pure. They enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. And then he concludes by saying this, and by them your servant is warned. Look at all the things that are there. Reading the book of God leads to the restoration of your soul, making us wise, bringing joy into our life and so forth, enlightening our eyes to understand and being warned from the stuff that's around us. Those are five benefits from just spending time in the law of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and is, in, as in, and is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training. See, the Bible can perform multiple functions, not just one. There's days when it needs to talk with me. There's days I need to be told, you got to stop doing that. That's called reproof. There's other days when God's going to say, you're getting out of the way. Correct your aim. Go back. Get back on course. And there's other days it says, you need a new survival skill. You're getting into a day when your old prayer life's not going to work. You need to learn to pray better. You need to learn to meditate upon scripture. You need some skills to help navigate through this. And my scripture is going to do that so that the man and woman of God will be adequate and equipped for every good work. How do I get that? Not through a, a mail order degree from the Dominican Republic. I get that by spending time in the book. <laughs> So you look at these and look at all the benefits, and they're so different and so varied, which tells us what? The Bible really has something to say for almost every situation and every need that we have. Now, because of all the benefits that's there, we have responsibilities. We have responsibilities that we have to live up to. I want to give you just a couple of them here on the next slide. We'll look at it. The word of God comes and says this, and this is just a few. I could add more, but this is just enough for us to play with today. Hebrews chapter two says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. The onus comes on us. We have to pay attention. The wind, the currents, the tide, the waves are around us everywhere, and they're going to drive us away from God. We have to keep our eye on the course. Captain Jack Sparrow, I love it, Pirates of the Caribbean. And he's up there, and the storm is blowing in the wind, and he's at the helm of the Black Pearl, and he's got his eye on this broken compass. Because as long as he follows the compass, he'll get to where he's supposed to go. He doesn't pay attention to all the stuff that's crashing around. His focus is on his compass. Is our focus on our compass? Or are we looking at CNN or Fox News or social media? What has captured our attention? We've got to go back. The next one here is we need to act upon it. This is a great story. This is about the two men, the wise man and the foolish man. And it says the wise man is a man who hears the word of God and acts on it. The foolish man hears the word of God, but he doesn't do anything with it. And they erect their houses, which is symbolic of their life. And what we see is this. When the storms come, one immediately falls. Stability comes because somebody acts on the word of God. They both heard the word of God. The difference is what you do with it. We need to act with it. The next one is this. This is the parable of the sower. 
The parable of the sower is that that's sown on stony ground. It goes in and it says this, it immediately springs up. So the seed gets there, but the soil is very shallow. It immediately springs up and people say, yes, look at it go. No, because then the sun comes out and it says, and it immediately dried up. A lot of immediates there, okay? We have to make sure that we don't focus on stuff that is just quick and instantaneous. We've got to focus on something that takes time and it gives people stability and root. That's why in the summer, in July, when it hits 113 degrees, my grass dies, but the weeds don't. <laughs> and the reason they don't is because their roots go down further than the grass. And people are the same way. When times get tough, those with deep roots last. Those who don't get fried. And then we go down to the last one. And this is such a beautiful one. It's Acts 17. This is the Bereans. As Paul goes from Thessalonica down to Berea, it says this. And the Bereans had a character quality that was very beautiful. It says this. Whenever they heard Paul preach something, it says they went back and daily they would search the scriptures to see if what they had heard was true. And it says they were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, which means the Thessalonians would hear things, but they wouldn't go back and check them out in the scripture to make sure that they were accurate. One of the tragedies that you find in the book of Corinthians is this. How many times when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he has to say this, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? He says to the church at Thessalonica, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you this? Well, maybe. Well, I told it to you. You heard the words, but guess what? Those words no longer have any meaning in your life. See, it's not enough for us to hear a great message on Sunday morning. Peter, Tamar, Bob, we get you for 35 minutes a week. What's filling our heads the rest of the week? Whatever we fill our heads with the rest of the week will have more impact on us than the 35 minutes that we get here. We've got to go and we've got to, you know, go back to it daily and begin to see the things that are there, what God wants to do in our life. Let's keep going. Now, just as we have responsibilities, we've got our next one. There are things that are going to keep you from the Word of God. There just are. The devil's going to do it. We see it in the parable of the sower there. The seed, the word of God is sown and birds come and pull it away. And how many of us, by the time we pull out of the parking lot, Satan's already trying to pull away the seed that's been planted. He does that. He's very quick about doing that. And as we go into this slide, what we're going to see is this. That there are times now, and I'm, I'm dropping down a little bit in there so you can see it's uh, slide number eight. There are dangers now that are keeping us away from the word of God. And some of the dangers that you're going to see is Satan. Paul's going to say this to the church at Corinth. He says, I'm afraid that as Satan beguiled Eve, he's going to come and he's going to rob you and take you away from the simplicity of the gospel. He's going to make things so complicated that you're going to be taught between all these opinions. And guess what? If he gets you to go back and forth between all these opinions, you're going to become double-minded and unstable. Stay with the singleness, the simplicity of the gospel. Satan will do this. False teachers are going to come in. You see the passage there in 2 Peter. They're going to come and they're going to twist and distort the word of God. They won't deny it. They'll just twist it to the point they can get it to say whatever they want it to say. And this is a big danger. You see the next one, disinterest. Some people just take the word of God and set it aside. They have no value for it. They're not going to take any time. And Satan says, fine, there's other things more important. Just put your Bible over there. Don't read it and so forth and focus on these. And these are the things that we tend to focus on, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, where we're going to live. And he says this, seek first the kingdom, not these things. And so you're going to go through and then he's going to come down and says empty forms of religion. It is interesting as Paul is talking to Timothy, and we'll refer to that in just a, a minute, a little bit more. But as Paul talks to Timothy, he says, the reason I left you in Ephesus was so that you could confront people that are teaching weird stuff. Uh, you need to understand what the truth is so that you can begin to point out the weird stuff that's out there at this point and just realize what's happening. And these are people that hide behind a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. 
They'll hide behind sacramentalism or worship or a religious system, but there's no life. There's no power that's there. And so it's interesting how Satan can come in religious garbs and still keep us away from the Word of God. And as we go down, and we'll look at the next slide up here, we'll just look at now these dangers that are out there. And, and you look down, at, and um, there are certain things now that we can do to offset this. And I'd, I'd love to go into this. Hopefully your leadership is going to take you through this time. These are what we call spiritual formation. These are spiritual disciplines that help us strengthen our ability to hear from God when it comes to his communication. We see up there meditation. Now, meditation is not oming out with your legs crossed in there, you know, and emptying your mind. Actually, meditation is filling your mind. It's focusing on something and working it through all the different things. It's re-digesting the things that God has said to us. We see memorization. We don't realize sometimes, we don't think about it because we're so blessed to have so many different versions of this. But back in the biblical world, 90% of the population did not read and they didn't have a Bible. How they hide God's word in their heart is by memorizing it. And one of the key ways of memorizing is by putting it to music because it's easier to memorize the lyrics of a little song than it is just a lengthy prose form of literature. When the Bible says, your word have I hid in my heart, Psalms 119, that means memorization. In Proverbs, when it says, write these upon the tablets of your heart, he's talking about memorization. Why? So if you ever get caught in a situation where you don't have your Bible or your app, you've got the Word of God. You're never in a place where the Word of God is away from you. You can evaluate things. We see the next one, singing. Some of the songs that we sing are straight Bible. Some of the songs we sing have theology, good theology. And as we sing, we're actually renewing our mind in what it is that we believe. That is how the early church, that is how they taught new believers their doctrine. I wish I could do that, did it in a class that Tamar was in. You read through the epistles in the New Testament. There are actually lyrics to early Christian songs that are part of the text. Because as Paul would write things, he said, I can't say it any better. And so in Colossians, he begins to quote the lyrics of a song. Because that's how they taught each other their theology and their doctrine. Sing the word of the Lord. Learn these songs. We see public reading, just as Tamar opened up this morning by reading from the Psalms. Just hearing the Word of God brings it back. It reminds us of things that we've seen before, and then finally teaching and preaching, which we're trying to do here today with you and so forth. Now, I'm going to have to end with this. Our time is running out, but I want to go to a slide that talks about the reminders, the reminders that God's people had. And in here, I want to show you as we go back, and I'm going to read a passage for you here. It's listed up there. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want you just to listen to the words here. And it says this, these words, and this is where Moses was giving the law to the people a second generation before they crossed into the promised land. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. He doesn't say your mind. He says your heart. They're going to be on your mind. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. Listen to this. When you sit in your houses, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you shall bind them now as a sign upon your hand. Now, and on the frontals of your forehead, you shall write them upon the doorposts now of your house and your gates. And then it shall come about that when the Lord shall bring you into the land which he has sworn to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. Look at what he says. The book that I'm giving you, the word of the Lord, I want it to be in your heart. I want it to be in your mind. I want you to write it upon the doorpost to your house. Every time you leave your house, you remember before you go into the world who you are and who you serve. Every time you come out of the world with all the junk that we get in the world and we go into our house to meet our family, we are reminded on the doorpost who we are and who we serve. When we sit in our house, when we talk to our kids, when we go to bed, what are the last thoughts in your mind? How much you don't like the new masking decision by the Supreme Court? 
If that's the last thing on our mind when we go to sleep, it will affect our dreams. It will affect our heart. When you get up in the morning, what's the first thing when you rise up in the morning? Is it, oh, I'm not looking forward to this day, or this is the day that the Lord has made? He says, when you go out, you write it anyway. He says, put it on your hands. The Jews had three reminders. They had what's called a mezuzah. This is a little box that sits on the doorpost of their house. Go to Israel, go to a Jewish home, and every Jewish door has a mezuzah on it. It has in it a little parchment of scripture, and in it is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And it's right there on the door that you never forget that. And every time they leave, they touch it or they kiss it. When you go into a motel in Israel, every elevator has one on. In a house, a Jewish home, every room has a mezuzah except the bathroom. The law doesn't govern what happens there. Nature does, all right? It just does. You go in there, all right? And so you go in there. So your whole house now is governed by what? The word of the Lord. The next one is a tzitzit. These are little strands, threads that have knots in them that were at the corners of their shawl. When they pray, they would put on their prayer shawls. And it was to remind them of the commandments of God, the things that they were addicted to. That's why in our culture, the old saying we used to have, you want to remember something? Tie a string around your finger. Tying the knot is indicating there's something I'm supposed to remember. When you wear a shawl and those things are down there on the bottom of it, and you're walking along and you see those threads on the bottom, it reminds you, you have to live by the commandments too. It needs to be in your clothing. Er? When's the last time you thought about your clothing and that when you look at your clothing, it reminds you of the commandments of God? Hmm. All right. The last one, tefillim. These are the little leather box that the Orthodox Jews will tie on their arms and their forehead. If you ever go to a synagogue, you have a chance to go to the Wailing Wall. They put one up here above their elbow on their left arm with leather straps going down, and they wrap one around their forehead. And in those are little pieces of scripture that have key passages from the Old Testament. And it's there so that what? The word of God, whenever the Jewish person is there and his arms are down, that little box is next to his heart. And when he is bowed before the wall, that little box is next to his mind. So that what? Once a day, and every Jew is required except on Shabbat, every Jew is required once a day, the males, to put on the tefillim. Why? Because every day the word of God needs to touch your heart and it needs to touch your mind. Now think about it just for a minute. We'll end here. You look at all that's here. God wants our word to be in our homes. He wants it to be in the conversations we have as we walk down the street, as we talk to our kids, as we leave business and so forth. He wants the remembrance of the word of God now to be in our attire as we walk through the day, that as I'm walking through the streets, I constantly remember I'm bound to the commandments of the Lord. My heart, my mind, my house, my kids, my life, everything. And that is daily. Now, God's saying something not to be legalistic. He's just saying something very specific, and that is this. As God's people, we can't go very long without connecting to God through his word. We need daily reminders, not so that we can put a notch in our Bible that we've done our devos for the day. No, it's because it's in the Bible that the things that enlighten our eyes, bring joy to our heart, cause us not to be simple and naive, warns us about if I don't go there very often, I'm going to lose sight of it. And the world's going to flood in with all of its stuff and I'm going to lose my peace. I'm going to lose my joy. I'm going to lose my insights. Why? because I don't follow the little reminders God once worked into my daily routine. I want to close today with a scripture. And I'd like you to turn, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn. It's in the book of Thessalonians. There's more that can be said, but we will end here. Due to the nature of the, our situation now with the pandemic and and massive inflation and just the threat of war again and all kinds of stuff. A lot of Christians are constantly asking the question, are we in the last days? Are we approaching the end times? How close are we? And so forth. I can't tell you the day and the hour, 
If I do, I'm an idiot because the Bible says nobody knows. All right, so I'm not going to put myself in that category. But what I do know is this. The Bible will tell us about characteristics of the last days, and it will tell us about the things that we can expect, and it will also tell us about the things that we need to do to prepare ourselves for those days as they come to us. And in Thessalonians now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I just want to read a few scriptures with us, and we'll end here, and then I'll just pray with you. It says, Now we... We ask you, brothers and sisters, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus. This involves a second coming. So I'm going to ask you and our gathering together that you will not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This is just one of the false teachings that was circulating at the time that Paul wrote this, and that is that Jesus had already come. And that means that these believers had to figure out what to do because they have been left behind. All right. So we go on to look at that. Now he says this, don't let yourself be shaken from your composure. Because there's all kinds of weird stuff that's going to happen. And some of the stuff that's going to happen is he's going to go down in verse 3. For no one now is to deceive you in any way. For it, the day of the Lord, his return and our gathering unto him, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Two things have to happen before the return of Jesus a falling away, and a revealing of a man of sin. And as you go through and look at the text, what is this falling away? It's going to go on in the chapter, and it's going to tell us what the falling away is. The falling away is when people leave the faith because the circumstances, the situations of life has caused them to forget or deny their association with the Lord. And we look at that, and Jesus said it in, when he taught in the end times. He said, if it's possible now, even the elect could be deceived in those days. There will be lying signs and wonders. There will be many false Christs saying he's here in the desert. He's here in this inner chamber and so forth. He says, just be, just be mindful. There's going to be a lot of junk. You have to find a way to navigate through all of that weird stuff. But this is how he goes on, and this is what I'll end with today. Go down to verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will eliminate now with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end now by his appearance of his coming. So the lawless one's going to be destroyed when Jesus comes back and so forth. That is the one now whose coming is according now to the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all deception now of wickedness for those who perish. And then verse 10. Notice who it is who gets deceived by the signs and wonders, who gets deceived by the deceptive teachings of the lawless one and so forth. It's this. It's because they did not accept the love of truth. Whoa. So as to be saved. For this reason... God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Why are people going to fall away? Because they never learn to love the truth. They never fell in love with the book. And because they don't fall in love with the book, signs and wonders and deceptive ideas are going to draw them aside to other things and they will fall away. Which means what? As we approach the end times, and this I know for absolute certainty, we're closer today than we were yesterday. Right? You can say that and be 100% accurate, all right? Look at our world today. Our culture has thrown its mind away. 
the stuff that they say is truth and the stuff that they're trying to foist upon us and so forth. And the tragedy is this. Some Christians are getting caught up in it. Why? Because their first love is not God, His Word, His presence. The thing that has preoccupied their minds is the distractions that are out there. None of us know where this is going. None of us knows what the next year holds. But the guy who inspired this book does. He knows what the future, he sees the end from the beginning. And what we need to know as we approach these days is how much I need to sit at his feet. When my heart gets so upset by what's going on in the world, can I find a place that rejoices the heart, a place that enlightens the eye, a place that gives wisdom to the naive? Can I find a safe place that I can go, that God can bring wholeness to my heart? Because when I go into the word of the Lord, the Lord will meet us. He'll meet with us. He'll talk with us. And that's how he's chosen to do it now for centuries. So being with God, that's our theme. And what I want to say is there's lots of different ways to be with God. But one way that I want to leave you with is be with God through his word. Go in there, learn as much as you can about him. Let him talk to you. Let his Holy Spirit begin to interpret and enlighten and so forth. And what you'll find is this. The days will get crazy, but your heart won't. And like a weaned child, you can comfort yourself when everything else is agitated around you. Why? You got a safe place, a place to go. Let me pray for you. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your church. We thank you for your spirit that lives in the church. We thank you for your word that gives us a clear look at what you want to say to us all. You have given us gifts, great gifts. And our job is to make sure that we handle those gifts with respect, with love. And so I pray that as this church, City Harvest, ventures into this next season, you will show up in the word as they read, as they journal, as they memorize, as they meditate. They will come in contact with you and that they will find their hearts burn. They will find the eyes of their understanding being opened. And I pray that for them, for the leaders, and for everybody that's here. Thank you, Father. We appreciate the great gift you've given to us. Amen.